We have now released issue three of the New Thinking Aloud magazine. Download it for free at newthinkingaloud.org. New Thinking Aloud is a non-profit endeavor. Your contributions to the New Thinking Aloud Foundation make a meaningful difference in our ability to produce new videos. Thinking Aloud Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring the 18th century Scottish philosopher David Hume, his philosophy of naturalism, and in particular a famous essay he wrote which is commonly taken to be against the idea of religious miracles. My guest is Dr. George Williams, who has a wide interdisciplinary background. As an undergraduate, he studied engineering at Vanderbilt, then worked at IBM for eight years. He switched to a different direction and studied literature at Maharishi International University, where he also became very curious about the notion of group consciousness. Then, he pursued a doctorate in economics at Northwestern. Since the late 90s, he has worked for a government agency, but during that time, he independently began to focus on what the parapsychological data can tell us about the nature of consciousness. George lives in Maryland, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, George. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Thank you, Jeff. I'm happy to be here. We'll be talking about David Hume and, in particular, his famous essay on miracles. I think maybe a good place to begin is to fill our readers in a little bit about who David Hume was and why he's considered an important philosopher today. Yes, well, David Hume is... Um has been and continues to be a very influential philosopher. I think that many people of a sort of skeptical orientation really appreciate David Hume because he off he was very skeptical about many things, especially religion, famously so. He lived, he was a contemporary of Adam Smith. He uh, lived and he was born and lived a lot of his life in Edinburgh, Scotland. He, uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your point of view, was never allowed um, a, an academic post, primarily because of his hostility to um, religion. In those days, not so much today, but in those days, which would be the middle of the 18th century, England, being hostile to religion was not something to put on your resume to open doors. So, nevertheless, he was... Uh, he actually grew up of very modest means. He was not, um, his family wasn't wealthy at all, but his mother real recognized that he was very unusually precocious and sent him to study, um, in Edinburgh with his brother. He, uh, devoured all kinds of books. And, uh, while the family wanted him to be a lawyer, he decided he just couldn't do that. So he decided that he would study, um, all kinds of things and settled eventually on philosophy. So he was one of the considered to be one of the um, most important um, 
uh, Enlightenment philosophers. And uh, he was very, of course, influenced in, uh, by um, Sir Isaac Newton. And he wanted to kind of do for the sort of the mind um, or the mental world what Newton was doing for the physical world. But for him, the most important thing, he, uh, he believed that it was very important that we ground knowledge only on our sense experiences. He was famously an empiricist. So Hume um, was not a big fan of just generating all kinds of a priori sort of, um, you know, reasoning to explain the world um, the way maybe someone like Leibniz would do. He opposed that. He simply wanted to ground our reality firmly on what we could see, what we could taste, he, you know, what he would call the sense impressions. So that's just a general overview. And, and, and that, that sort of approach or attitude sort of is the foundation of his philosophy. And he was considered an Enlightenment philosopher. But I guess it's very important to point out that uh, European Enlightenment in the 18th century is very different from the way we often use the word Enlightenment today with a tip of the hat to the Eastern traditions. The idea in Western Enlightenment was that it was a kind of movement away from what could be considered, I guess, supernatural kinds of um, forces or beliefs and to try to sort of explain the world in terms of scientific laws that would have some sort of maybe mathematical property of some kind. Hume was known particularly for the philosophy of naturalism. I have spoken to philosophers today who consider themselves naturalists and, and their attitude, I'm sure it's derived from Hume, is uh, when I bring up parapsychology, it's simply, there's no need to discuss it. It's uh, simply out of bounds. It has nothing to do with the natural world, and therefore, it, it virtually, uh, we can consider it as non-existent. I'm sure they probably were influenced by Hume. Hume, um, you know, wanted to focus our understanding of the world on our sense impressions, um, he might consider something, and, and maybe some of these skeptics you mentioned might consider parapsychology as drawing on imagination, imagine, imagined beliefs or supernatural beliefs or religious beliefs that we've inherited over time and therefore are not really grounded in things that we can really sort of observe and therefore test. It's very interesting to me that uh, they have an attitude which has actually been echoed recently by some skeptics, uh, pro professional skeptics, not simply casual philosophers who feel that this is out of bounds, but uh, people who are members of the uh, organized groups of skeptics responded not long ago, I'm sure you're aware of this, uh, in 2018 when Etzel Cardenia published a lengthy article in The American Psychologist reviewing, uh, I think, well over a thousand empirical studies of parapsychology in which they found that uh, the, re the results were highly significant statistically, and the uh, research methodology was very rigorous. And in response, these skeptics said, well, we don't need to look at the data because as far as we're concerned, it violates uh, the laws of physics. And uh, so why, why even question the data? Obviously, something must be wrong with it. 
Yes, uh, that's uh, uh, Reber and Alcock, um, I believe. And they also quoted David Hume's argument on miracles. They basically said, well, because Psy is violating certain law, established laws of nature, and they discussed what they figured, what they believed to be the sort of the pivotal laws of nature, they must be miracle or must be some sort of miracle or evidence of fraud um, or um, questionable research methods. And therefore, according to it, therefore has to be dismissed according to David Hume's argument on miracles. They have a very selective way of, of reading Hume um, because it wasn't a, Hume in his, in his essay on miracles is, is, is targeting religious miracles, things like people rising from the dead or curing blindness by, um, you know, putting, putting mud on their, on their eyelids. And he wasn't talking about laboratory um, findings, which might be anomalous in some sense. To put it charitably, it's just not really clear that they've done their homework to take Hume's arguments and sort of turn it against the, the psi data. As I recall what you wrote, I quoted him in uh, the essay that I submitted to the Bigelow Institute on evidence for survival after death. He, he said, no amount of human testimony is sufficient to establish the existence of a miracle. Yes, Hume did say that. Um, however, it remains to be established whether the side data really is miraculous. I mean, perhaps it's something we're, we're seeing something that doesn't quite fit with current theories. It may be that current theories are just somehow incomplete. And so it turns out that the side data really does have to, a lot to do with the nature of consciousness. It, uh, some of the data actually involves quantum mechanics in terms of the processes that generate random numbers. So there, th these are areas that we are, what, that we still, still struggle to understand. Once we, you know, have a, com a more complete understanding of science, we might well say, see that the psi data um, fits um, very well. Well, I know one of the main criticisms of Hume's argument, I think it was raised by C.S. Lewis, uh, amongst others, the great novelist and also essayist, who, who said that basically Hume's argument is circular. He, he starts out by saying his, his basic premise is that natural laws cannot be violated, and, and then he ends up with, with that conclusion. Uh, so he hasn't really established anything at all, and, and particularly when we understand by science that the so-called natural laws of science are changing from generation to generation. I, I imagine that C.S. Lewis and Hume might have different ideas about what the nature of, of, of laws are, but what the, what the real nature of these scientific laws is something that still uh, philosophers debate about. One of the important insights that Hume actually brings to this, which I think is actually not helpful to the cause of skeptics, is that Hume um, s argues that when we really try to um, access these, these, these laws, these causal laws through our sense impressions, which recall is what I said Hume is basing his whole philosophy on, we don't really we don't really see, we have no way of accessing or fully characterizing these causal laws. So for Hume, um, we can't really say anything about causality beyond 
the regularities we see. We, we can characterize the regularities in, in some cases and with very elegant, precise mathematical equations, but we can't really go beyond that, according to Hume, and say, um, what's, what's behind the regularities? What, is there something that would prevent um, you know, what we're seeing in the laboratories? It's, that's a much more difficult question. And, and that's something that philosophers still continue to try to understand. What is the nature of these laws? In other words, Hume is uh, such an authentic skeptic that he's calling into question the very idea of causality, which uh, most modern-day so-called skeptics, I think of them often as pseudo-skeptics, they don't want to go that far. That's a very good point. Um, Hume when it, Hume's version of skepticism isn't just targeting religious beliefs or miracles. He's actually looking at everything in our world, including our causal relationships. And with Hume, all we all he, he argued that well, what we observe is one object following followed by another object, or one event following by another event. We don't really see the connection. We just see. Um, the, 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 the one thing following another. So he argued that we can sort of summarize the regularities, but that's about as far as we can go. Now, with regard to parapsychology, it seems perfectly understandable that when you have a thousand or more experiments, I think the Cardania article referred to over 1,300, maybe 1,400 uh, published experiments in uh, scientific journals establishing the existence of what parapsychologists think of as extrasensory perception and psychokinesis, that seems to be very distinct from accounts of miracles. But on the other hand, in, in the literature, particularly the survival literature, we have full body materializations, we have apports, we have a lot of phenomena that begin to blend more and more into uh, what people could think of as the miraculous. A lot of the um, skeptics don't recognize that a lot of weight or a lot of power from Hume's arguments against miracles comes from what he characterizes the sentiment that people had with respect to religious beliefs. He noted that people, it, religious beliefs inspire a sense of wonder, of passion. Um, and Hume felt that these were sort of in, made, made their testimony inherently um, unreliable. So, so, and then when you pivot to the laboratory, you know, when we're talking about the side data, Basically, you're talking about experiments that follow protocols, that um, engage with critics, and therefore basically removes a lot of the inherent problems against religious testimony. So this is something that's usually missing from the skeptical um, arguments. But now you're, you're mentioning another literature, um, you know, uh, uh, survival, apports, um, this is this this may you know invoke. You, I could see how this might invoke um, the kind of sentiment that that Hume was discussing, and so you know you could see how the debate might follow a kind of well you know there it's we, we can't rely because we because it's sort of it's inspiring all these inherently um, unreliable sort of passions and so forth. 
Um, so, so it may be that that's an area where um, that, 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 that some of Hume's argument might, might get traction. Um, I would also suggest that some of these areas, though, probably may fall into the area, the mystery, the, the problems of understanding consciousness and what, what the reality, I mean, for, for post-life, uh, if we don't, if we don't really have a good theory of consciousness, can we really rule out conscious experience after the body um, ceases to function? Um, these are, you know, these are very, I think these are still interesting questions. Well, and the parapsychological data, the experimental data, simply ESP, even card guessing tests and dice throwing tests with psychokinesis, establish that, uh, as Ryan used the phrase, the reach of the mind is beyond the physical body. In Ryan's work, I think it was Price that was one of the first to invoke him and to attack um, Ryan's work. It's a it's an interesting paper where he first begins by saying, "Looks like." Ryan has established that ESP is real, but then he sort of unsheaths um, Hume's uh, um, argument against miracles and says, this is impossible. His argument, I think, falls into the same, um, same problem that uh, what I was mentioning with Reber and Alcock. And in both those cases, um, they try to sort of establish these sort of what C.D. Broad called basic limiting principles, or in Reber and Alcock, they they call um, scientific principles. Basically, the, the, the science skeptics have a tendency to sort of try to establish these, these limiting principles that could constrain what is allowable in experiments. And uh, the problem, though, is that training principles are established in a particular area of science where we've done copious experiments and we have great understanding and uh, um of the results based on great precision, but they're applied to another area that we have less understanding of. And if we go, if we turn to Hume, we don't access these laws um, in an a priori sense that is based on experiments here. We can a priori say exclude the possibilities in this other area. Hume would basically say that you can't um, sort of construct these limiting principles that can just, that you can just apply apply all over the place. Well, Hume, uh, to my understanding, is, is very limited. Uh, I'm not a, a philosopher, really, or a, a student of the history of philosophy, but I understand he, he wrote a great deal about the relationship between logic and the passions. And I think at one point he famously said uh, that Perhaps it was in the realm of ethics. I'm not quite sure that logic should appropriately be ruled by the passions. Yeah, the, the rationalists would probably, um, you know, did fight him on that. But I think that's a, a really excellent point because our passions are arguably sort of rooted in, you know, of, of who we are, our sense of identity, our sense of fundamental beliefs. Scientists are struggling in terms of cognitive bias. They're, in other words, they're 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 reasoning, they're, they're justifying things that are in conflict with their sort of more deeper held beliefs, okay? Hume argued that because we don't really access the laws of nature as such through our sense impressions, we by necessity have to sort of construct beliefs of causality that are actually based in just habits of mind, custom, and held together by emotion, or he would use the word sentiment. This would be a foundation for 
our, our, our reasoning or maybe, you know, our, our lack of reasoning. If I recall correctly, I think Hume believed that with regard to moral decisions, we delude ourselves if we think that our logic is, is what is behind the moral decisions that we make, that ultimately they're all a question of, as you say, sentiment. Hume was very perceptive. That was really where he, he actually spent a lot of his time focusing on sort of a, a phenomenological basis for um, how we, in some sense, construct reality. It's a very different view from the what you would get from how skeptics often portray him, but he was very interested in the psychology of how um, beliefs are constructed. Since we can't really observe um, clearly what, what the laws are or what the causal links are, our minds have a tendency to form habits based on what we've observed. We see lots of repetitions of the way the world works. We construct these causal change that we just sort of go with. But then, but then, as you point out, there's 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 the, the passions play a role. The, you know, and and so you can sort of imagine if you have a habit, if you've habitually sort of, let's say, you have a paradigm, a way of thinking. Um, and, and you identify with it, it's a sense of, you know, you, you spend your career on it, then there's, there are certain passions that are coming into play that um, you might not even be fully aware of unless you're paying close attention. And you, you might delude yourself into thinking that it's just all logic. I think an interesting contrast might be between David Hume and another British empiricist of the same era, uh, Bishop George Barclay who uh, they were both empiricists, but Barclay seemed to be very clear that uh, everything we experience emanates from the mind of God. Uh, that was a step I think that Hume was not willing to take. And that's a very, yeah, that's a very different view, the view of idealism. I, I think this might suggest a, a, maybe a shortcoming of Hume in the sense that while Hume described his his philosophy based on sense impressions. He didn't talk about what the, this kind of field of consciousness that we all experience, where we experience those sense impressions. What is the basis of our conscious experience? And it's very difficult for, um, at least in my view, and I think a lot of philosophers of consciousness feel that it's very difficult to come up with how just a physical world, you know, how, how consciousness arises in just a physical world. So uh, uh, there, then there, there are philosophers of mine who suggest that, well, perhaps it's, it's, it might even be easier to think that if, if, if consciousness is fundamental, the way that Berkeley would have, would, would, have, would have argued, it may be a, a little bit easier to come up with arguments of how the physical emerges. But I think it's fair to say that there's a very strong tradition in philosophy that consciousness itself is primary and that the existence of a physical world is an inference that we make. It's not a, a, a direct experience. It's interesting because consciousness, our conscious experience, is what we're most intimate with. The laws of nature that scientists sort of talk about, those are inferred from many, many, many experiments. So we actually have we're actually less familiar with these sort of more this sort of more abstract nature of reality than the sort of more concrete experience that we know directly. 
correct me if I'm I'm wrong, George, but wouldn't it be the case that Hume, in his skepticism, would refer to things like the nature of mind or the nature of reality as a whole as as a mystery? He would say we simply can never know. I, yeah, I think he would say that we, we don't know. I, I think that his methodology of only relying on the sense express impressions arguably kind of limits his ability to these sense impressions appear in something if we're if we're being sort of just clear about our experiences so what is the nature of the experience so Hume's methodology doesn't really give us I think um, sort of the, the a, a good way of getting a handle on what consciousness itself is. It doesn't seem to me that that's such a bad position because if you refer to, you know, consciousness is is the ground of reality or God is the ground of reality, or you say, well, the ground of reality is a mystery, in, in a way it's you're saying the same thing. <laughs> it takes a lot of the force of skeptics to say, well, psi can't be real, because if consciousness itself is, once you acknowledge that consciousness is inherently mysterious, then you really don't have good grounds to dismiss, as you say, thousands of experiments which have demonstrated some kind of non-local relationships, um, you know, in, 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 these, uh, in these experiments. Of course, we live in a materialistic culture, and basically the European Enlightenment was a way of establishing more firmly the materialistic outlook as opposed to the dominance of, of the church and the religious outlook. And, and many people would say that led to enormous scientific progress. And it, it's still, I would say, the dominant metaphysics of our culture today. But that, in effect, is probably also a weakness of our culture. The philosopher Philip Goff um, wrote a book, I think it was Galileo's Error. He pointed out that Galileo um, argued that we should only focus on those, those things that can be quantified, but, but, but it's, it's important to recognize that it was a limitation. That it, in other words, scientific methods are sort of founded on a kind of constraining what we can investigate. And that's what led to the progress. But it, what it does is it leads to a kind of, there may be a, a, a misperception that people have that suggests, well, science can reveal everything, not recognizing that it was actually designed in its development very consciously to, to, to not um, investigate those areas where, where it was poorly equipped. Yes, there's an interview with Philip Goff on this channel, and as a matter of fact, I can uh, link to it for any viewers who might be interested. He would point out that according to Galileo, we might know the uh, electromagnetic frequency uh, of the color of your shirt, blue, but with science, we'll never be able to understand the experience of seeing blue, or, for example, the taste of a lemon. We can analyze the chemical properties of a lemon and the acidic qualities and so on, but the actual taste of it, the experience, or, or what philosophers call the qualia, would be beyond science. That's right, and that's 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 very important to recognize, and and I that's been a very influential book for me to to really crystallize how our scientific methods 
are excellent in certain areas, but not so well in other very areas that happen to be very important to us. Now, I think uh, an advance over Hume's philosophy would be uh, what William James called radical empiricism, in, in which he suggested, you know, that anything that is experienced in the mind becomes empirical data that we cannot ignore. That view sort of expands a little bit from Hume's idea of just purely sens sensory impressions, but also it suggests that, yeah, we our consciousness is important data and therefore we need to recognize that our sort of first person accounts um you know give us important information about about who we are in our world and i admire also his pragmatism his you know if, if the, the idea that you know we we should you know consider the knowledge that's very useful in terms of making our lives better um he actually even i think would counter Hume in terms of, so Hume might say, well, religious miracles are uh, are inherently, or the testimony is inherently unreliable. But William James might say, well, wait a minute, though. What if it gives, what if some of these religious miracles, like, as you point out, um, survival, what if it gives people a sense of meaning, a sense of joy, a sense of awe, of mystery, and in some sense makes their lives feel more worth living, you know, that seems to be an important consideration as well. So that you could sort of imagine, it's sort of a fun experiment to imagine them having that kind of debate. And of course, today, there's a, a vast literature on religious experience. And even if you think beliefs in, in religion are uh, untrue, they nevertheless seem to promote a healthy attitude towards life. Uh, uh, along many dimensions, and people with religious beliefs seem, among other things, to be happier. So that's a good point, and it's also worthwhile to suggest, well, maybe that is a reason to, not only in a pragmatic sense, but maybe th th maybe there's something about religion that's touching on something that's that's true in some sense. Now, I think it's the case that in uh, William James' era, the term paranormal uh, came into popular use. James often referred to experiences with mediums, uh, for example, as providing paranormal information. And at, in that era, I think the idea was to try and suggest that paranormal was not necessarily supernatural, that uh, there was some kind of a distinction. We don't have to think of these things as being uh, religious miracles. We can think of them as something that eventually will be understood as normal and natural, but they're so rare that we could call them paranormal for the time being. Yeah, I was I was reading um, some William James the other day. I think the book was on, he was, he was addressing the, the the possibility of um, survival, and uh, and and he mentioned he, he had a version of the hard problem of consciousness, is as a, a way to to suggest that we can't really dismiss the possibility. That, but he also pointed out that the mind um, had a I think he, he he sort of he had sort of a version of the brain as a filter that there's sort of a, a larger mind what he called I think he used the word mind at large. Uh, or something like that, or maybe that's Henry Bergson who used that phrase. But anyway, they both had a had a, th a theory of the brain as a filter. But um, but I, I mean, you could see how he was, you know, thinking that 
a lot of what people were assuming were, was kind of limited. And I think he was like willing to sort of just expand our, um, our, our at least the possibilities um, that that might suggest that our, our our consciousness, our being, you know, does isn't just our body. Yes, as I recall, James referred to a cosmic reservoir of all knowledge, and that our minds serve not to generate conscious experience, but to filter out the experience from this large reservoir, because we would be overwhelmed if we were aware of everything all at once, which, you know, occasional paranormal experience suggests that as a possibility. That So to protect us so that we can live our lives, earn a living, raise our children, do the things that we have to do, the brain filters most of what would be available to us out, so we don't have to pay attention to it. I'm thinking a lot about that myself, the the, the the, the nature of the brain as, as, as a filter. It's a very, uh, it's a very interesting idea. And I think it's a way to kind of like accommodate a lot of this um, anomalous literature. Well, this might be a good time to introduce Thomas Kuhn into our discussion. And Kuhn's very influential book on the nature of scientific revolutions is probably quite relevant here. The whole discussion of, of, of the psi literature does suggest very strongly that of a, of a, of a new kind of paradigm. And, and, and Kuhn um, really kind of studied the history of science, and he suggested that, or he argued very, very influentially, that science doesn't really progress very smoothly through time, you know, learning and, and adding to its stock of knowledge, but instead, you know, there are these uh, sort of ways of thinking, which he called paradigms, where that could become very rigid and that could actually exclude certain certain methods or certain metaphysical beliefs. Um, you know, today it's very easy to see that the Psy skeptics seem to be in one paradigm and the, and the people who are researching Psy seem to be sort of, um, you know, in a, in a different sort of, uh, um, what Hume also, I mean, uh, Kuhn also used the term um, a disciplinary matrix, you know, to kind of capture the idea of a paradigm. So, but the way it connects with Hume is that, as you recall, Hume noted that we don't really um, have access to the causal relationships or the sort of what we normally think of as scientific laws. So we sort of construct out of uh, sort of our habitual ways of thinking. And I think that that's a, there's, a, there's a really natural way that Hume sort of goes into um, Thomas Kuhn's thinking, that is, these sort of habits of mind become these sort of paradigms, and there's a lot of resistance when someone comes along and says, well, wait a minute, there's some evidence over here that doesn't quite fit with the paradigm. And of course, Kuhn would say, well, people in one paradigm, they discourage um, finding these anomalies because that sort of, in a way, upsets their their institutional sort of um, way of doing things. But Hume has a way, Hume's sort of arguments, I think, has a way of supporting, um, you know, Thomas Kuhn's um, arguments on how we sort of get in, get in, <laughs> invest ourselves in these, in these paradigms that, you know, we might not get out of uh, for, uh, for some, some length of time. Yeah, a paradigm can last a long time. I, I know that uh, the New Newtonian physics paradigm lasted 
for hundreds of years, and it's now been over a hundred years since uh, the paradigm shifted with quantum mechanics and uh, Einstein's theory of relativity. And it's very interesting. Now we we're sort of in this um, area where there, there's discussions of uh, consciousness, and it's very interesting how the, the, the even even you know if you want to set aside the debates on psi for a moment, you have people on one side that say, well, consciousness is something that doesn't really quite fit in the material world. Maybe it's fundamental. And then you have people on the other side that says, well, materialism has been worked fine for hundreds of years. Why should we change it? And of course, that brings up what we, our discussion of Galileo's error and how um, science, as we, at least as we know it, might not be very well equipped currently to investigate those kinds of questions. So you can see that that's one paradigm. And of course, it could be that the psi data is suggesting anomalies that the uh, I think the philosoph people who study philosophy of mind could use to think of, well, this data might help us consider um, how we can come up with a new understanding of consciousness um, in a way ultimately that maybe fits and incorporates with all our other understandings. So anyway, it's very relevant to um, our, our, under our, our debates going ongoing. I recall attending some 20 years ago early uh, conferences on the nature of consciousness. It's now considered a legitimate area uh, of scholarship, uh, but back then it was not necessarily. And I do remember uh, some of the consciousness researchers, particularly neurophysiologists, would say, well, we don't understand normal consciousness. First, we have to figure out how normal consciousness works. Then we can start to consider all this paranormal data. And, and I remember at the time I was, in fact, spoke up at one of those meetings and said, you've got it exactly backwards. We won't ever understand normal consciousness until we come to terms with the paranormal data. Yeah, that sounds very much like, as William James might put it, you know, we want to we want to sort of understand the anomalous data sort of helps us, you know, understand, you know, the white crow is enough to tell us, you know, that all crows are not black. And so we, we, we want to understand the anomalous. Well, William James suggested all you need is one white crow to disprove the uh, hypothesis that all crows are black. I think Thomas Kuhn is saying that over time, these so-called anomalies that get ignored for the most part accumulate and accumulate to the point where they no longer can be ignored. And somewhere along the line, someone is going to come up with a theory that can account for them. And then uh, when enough of the older generation of scientists die off, the new theory it becomes the uh, dominant paradigm. Yeah, yeah, that's the uh, that's the story that Kuhn tells, and I, I think that's probably yeah the, the the way it has to happen. But he, he doesn't say it's. I don't think he predicts exactly the precise conditions when you know it, it's sort of well once enough anomalies happen or once someone comes up with the right kind of theory, he really actually resisted the notion that even once we overthrow and have a new have a new um, paradigm, which is in some ways. Um, better at dealing with the anomalies, he resisted the idea that we ever get really closer to the truth um, in some sense, he, he, which is actually a very human kind of uh, position. 
One of my mentors was Arthur M. Young. He was uh, the man who invented the Bell helicopter and got into cosmology. And he used to say, uh, because after Kuhn's work, many people would say, I have the new paradigm. And uh, there's still people like that. Uh, around that they, I've invented the new paradigm, and Arthur Young would say that's impossible because a paradigm actually is not conscious; it operates at the subconscious level. He said an example of a paradigm would be uh, about 250 years ago in the United States during the era of uh, David Hume. As a matter of fact, uh, we were burning witches at the stake here in America. Today, we say, oh, witchcraft doesn't exist. So that's a real paradigm shift. Yes, yes, yes. One thing that's kind of interesting about paradigms is that it has to be, it has to be shared across, um, across, a, 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 you know, a side, a, a side, a, a relatively large number of researchers because one of the, one of the useful functions of a paradigm, we often think about how paradigms may, might limit us. But Kuhn was actually also suggesting the advantages because it has a way of coordinating across different laboratories, different um, academics and, and researchers. They all sort of share the same sort of methods and assumptions and, and so forth. That allows them great, that, that allows for efficiency. They can sort of like, you know, read each other's work and, and sort of like, you know, and, and basically work within that paradigm. There's a sort of efficiency about it. So it's, you can't you can't have just one person that comes out and says, "Well, I've got the new paradigm," because it doesn't really become a paradigm unless you've got a, a sort of a, a wider number of people. George, I know that one of your big interests is the implications of parapsychology data for physics and for the philosophy of mind, and I wonder if if you've arrived at any conclusions. <laughs> well, as it happens, I do have my own sort of position, which I think is um, arguably um, a, a very strong one. And that is, is that I, I, there are two sort of philosophies that I kind of like to sort of combine. And one of them is Brazilian monism. And that's the argument that there's an intrinsic aspect of the physical world that science can't really tell us about. Um, and Brazilian monism argues that this that there is an intrinsic aspect and there are good reasons to think that it might be the ground of consciousness that is if we think of consciousness as fundamental that there are reasons to think that the intrinsic aspect of matter that is if you think about you know all the <laughs> particles that um, sort of constitute our world what is in their as what, what is their sort of fundamental essence that's kind of the intrinsic aspect and Bertrand Russell, who actually is, most people think of him as pretty, would be kind of skeptic in a lot of ways, argued that, that con our conscious experience is the only thing that we know of that has a kind of intrinsic nature. That is, it doesn't really um, sort of, it, it seems to be something that we experience um, without the um, benefit of sort of abstract equations. And so, he argued that our the best sort of um, the, the, the our best bet for for intrinsic nature is consciousness. So consciousness is sort of at the root of reality. But then you might ask, 
well, what is, well, okay, what, what, what is this root of reality? Is it quantum mechanics? Is it particles? What is it? So another sort of um, philosophical position is that the best way to understand quantum mechanics because of, of the non-local correlations is that there's some sort of underlying ground that is simultaneously sort of orchestrating the, um, the, 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 uh, the different instantiations of possible quantum states. And, there, and this quantum ground is, has a sort of non-local um, sort of property. It has to in order to um, be able to sort of influence simultaneously the different quantum states. So if you put these two things together, you have this quantum ground having consciousness properties. So you and, and, and in a non-local way, and you might also argue that this sort of conscious ground of consciousness is sort of a field of potentiality, because of course you know what is beyond the particles um, that constitute our world. Well, this con- if it's this ground, it has to be a ground of sort of um, potential or potentiality. It's very consistent with the uh, psi data. It's actually very similar in a lot of ways to David Bohm's um, sort of ground of potential, which he characterized as, as an implicate order. He would use phrases like sort of the, the probability flux that sort of ultimately guides um, the particles that constitute our world. You've used the word non-local a number of times, and I know it's become a kind of buzzword amongst the uh, parapsychology community in, in particular, but I, I, I'm under the impression it's not a well-understood term. Do you have a definition for that term? In the standard equation of quantum mechanics, which is called Schrodinger's equation, you have an equation that basically describes the behavior of different, let's say, quantum states. For example, you might have a particle that might be in a particular position, but there's a probability um, attached to that position. Then you have a probability that it might be in another position. These correlations are appear to be instantaneous, which means no matter how far away you are, it, once you know the position of particle A, you know the position of particle B, assuming that the probabilities are linked only with just each other. So this is non-local. In fact, it kind of violates um, relativity. That's why this sort of version of quantum mechanics is often called non-relativistic quantum mechanics, because in, in relativity, information has is constrained or, or light is constrained to how fast it can travel. But those constraints don't seem to appear to at least this um, um, in terms of uh, quantum mechanics. So it seems it's as if it's outside of the spatio-temporal order, or, or in something perhaps maybe something is more fundamental than space-time. So that's kind of the the idea. So so non-local means um, you know, in, in in other words, that it's just simply outside of our spatio-temporal um, you know order. You know, let me share a little story, a funny story with you about that. Recently, my stepson, Lewis, who lives with us, uh, who loves to joke around, asked me, uh, what is the shortest distance between two points? 
And I was about to say, well, of course, it's a straight line. And then I thought for a minute and I said, no, it's a wormhole. It's a wormhole because the two points are actually uh, intimately connected uh, through quantum entanglement. There's actually no space. And he said to me, well, I said, why do they call it a wormhole then? He said, there are no worms in there. And I couldn't answer. I said, well, I don't know. And then later on, he came to me and he said, I have a new word. He said, we should call it a hyperpoint, a hyperpoint that connects two points no matter how far away they are. That's the shortest space between the two points. It's a better word than a wormhole. Wow, that's a very interesting yeah, term, hyperpoint. I've never heard that before. It's very, that sounds like he's, he's uh, onto something. I thought so. And uh, if the term catches on, I want everyone to know it's my stepson, Louis Barlow, who, to my knowledge, invented the term. Yeah, yeah. I think he should write a paper, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> His specialty is Chinese linguistics. Uh, perhaps he got it from that. George, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you today. These are very important topics for people who want to get to understand the, the mysteries of parapsychology. So I'm, I'm really delighted we've had a chance to review uh, the nuances of David Hume's philosophy, Thomas Kuhn's philosophy, William James' philosophy, and how they link to each other. Well, thank you. I've really enjoyed uh, talking to you, Jeff. And I, I agree with you. These are very important debates that are worth having. Thank you for being with me today. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us. You are the reason that we are here. I imagine that by now, many of you already realize that, in conjunction with White Crow Books, we've just launched the new Thinking Aloud Dialogues book imprint, and our first title is, Is There Life After Death? New Thinking Aloud is a non-profit endeavor. Your contributions to the New Thinking Aloud Foundation make a meaningful difference in our ability to produce new videos.